Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and make your way in, if you would, please. We're going to begin our service with our call to worship, found in Psalms chapter 24. It's a great one to start our day off. It's a psalm of David. We'll read the first six verses where he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. I pray that that's the God that you worship this morning. And that you're here this morning to present yourself as that sacrifice, as he tells us in Romans 12. This morning we begin our first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a word that means coming or visit. In the Christian season of Advent, we prepare for the Advent of Christ at Christmas. By lighting one candle each week of Advent, we help ourselves get ready for the birth of Christ. The candles have different meanings, each based upon the Bible. These meanings help us understand how special the birth of Jesus is for us. The first candle we'll light this morning is called the candle of hope. It symbolizes our faith in God in keeping His promises to humanity. By lighting the candle, we remember Israel's hope for the coming of God's Messiah to save, to forgive, and to restore them. We remember that Christ is the hope of our salvation, and we remember our hope for the second coming of Christ. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the hope that you've given us. Lord, hope is the the one virtue, Lord, that we want to hang on to as your word speaks of your hope. We, Father, we thank you that Jesus is the sum of all of our hopes that we have this morning. And I pray that you would just uh, join with us this morning as we invite you, as we lift up our hearts and our and our voice to sing your praises, to pray, Lord, to consider your word, and Lord, to apply our lives. Lord, that you would just strengthen this morning. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. What a great prayer to have. Join with us this morning as we come to prayer before our Lord. Dear Father, you are worthy of all honor and praise. And we come before you this morning to declare our love for you. Our hearts and voices join together to proclaim your majesty and your beauty. There is nothing in this world that compares to your greatness. Your compassion and mercy are ever on display as we receive your goodness. We are not worthy, however, of your compassion and mercy. As children of disobedience, we have ignored your commands and your kindness many times. We received your blessings and thought of them as rewards of our own efforts and talents, intelligence, and hard work. We have neglected in giving you the honor you so rightly deserve. 
Forgive us of our sins as we confess them this morning. Turn our hearts towards you. Let our lips speak forth your praise. We come before you this morning to thank you for hearing our prayers and the cries of our hearts. You are Jehovah Jireh, our God, our provider. You are El Shaddai, our loving Father, who generously gives all good things. James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And you are worthy of all praise. We come before you humbly this morning to ask for your compassion to be renewed each morning. Increase our faith. Restore the joy of our salvation. Open our hearts to your wonder-working power. Send your spirit to engage our minds and our affections this morning. Let us see you as more treasurable than all that this world can offer. Hear our prayer this morning, O Father. May the Spirit carry our prayers with all speed to your precious Son as he pleads on our behalf. In the name of your precious Son, Jesus, we pray. Join with us in turning to Galatians chapter 3 as we've been working our way through that chapter as well as the whole letter to the churches of Galatia. In this third chapter of Galatians, we've seen Paul's defense of the gospel that both Jew and Gentile are included in salvation. And that salvation by grace through faith and not of works. Paul has set forth three spiritual truths as we've looked at this chapter. The first one is that there was no need to be circumcised in order to belong to the family of God. The second was that the Spirit is the true sign of belonging to God's family. And that faith is what is necessary to be part of the family of God. The Judaizers, those that have influenced that church of Galatia, that was trying to drive the church back to the law, back to the dietary laws, back to circumcision, and said that was necessary, responded to Paul by saying that his message was not true. That justification or being made right with God is not by faith alone, but it's faith plus works. Faith might have been good enough for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now that has been surpassed, they say, by the Mosaic law, the ceremonial, the civil, and the purity laws. In other words, they contend that the law changed the old way of salvation by faith. It is now by works of obedience to the commands of law. Their belief, the Judaizers believe, is that from the time of the law on, God would justify by faith plus works. Faith is only something that you need to start, and then the works kind of take over, and that's how one becomes right with God. And this is probably a question that the Jews would probably say, why else would the law be? The law must serve some type of purpose. So in their mind, they're trying to take the promise and the law and say, what does it mean? What do these two things mean? However, Paul, in this passage, Paul is anticipating that argument that faith is not enough and that you must also obey or do good works to be made right with God. And let me stop here because this is the issue that's so important to those churches of Galatia. How is one made right before God? And that's the issue before you and I today. 
For in other words, let me ask you this. If you were to stand before God right now, today, this moment, and He were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would your answer be? If your answer is, well, you know, uh, you know my, well, my grandma's a Christian, we went to church, you know, I have her Bible, I was baptized, here's my certificate, that answer would be insufficient. If you were to say, well, I've tried to do all the good things, I've gone to church, I've read my Bible, I gave tithes and I gave good works and I helped with the angel tree, all these good things then must make me good enough to enter the kingdom of God. Well, for those of us who know the gospel, know the scripture, know that that is wrong. Doing good works is good, but it does not save one. So to stand right before God, we must come up with how does one become right with God. Well, you may be here today and you say, well, I feel that I am right with God. Well, here's the bad news. The scripture tells us that we're not. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners and there's none of us that are righteous. And so the question, how is one made right with God, has made all of these different religions. To answer that question has been what's propelling man forward with all the different religions and denominations and all the other things that you see today. It's man's attempt to answer that question. And Paul is saying, we have the answer. It's the gospel. And the gospel... Paul is saying it's worth fighting for, it's worth dying for. Paul is anticipating their argument, excuse me, that faith is not enough, and demonstrating that the promise, the Abraham covenant, is much superior to the law, the Mosaic covenant. And Paul is about to give these churches of Galatia and those of us who read his letter a history lesson in the redemptive salvation plan of God. We discovered last week that Jesus is the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15, in which God promised Adam to Eve that he would provide the one who will redeem them from their sin and fallen state. And make no mistake, that's where the world finds itself today, in its fallen and sinful state. Each and every one of us that have been born find ourselves in that state. Today, as we look at Genesis chapter 3, 19, Paul is going to address two questions about the law in order to help them to understand what is the purpose of the law. And so, Father, before we do so, we ask for your strength. Father, we ask for your wisdom. I pray that your spirit will now find free reign. Let us not quench it. I pray that you would break down any barrier, any indifference, any uninterest, that we may not have in your word, Lord, that we may see it as glorifying, that we may see your beauty and your majesty speak to us in your way. May your words have life imparted unto us. We pray this in your name. Amen. The first question we're going to see is, why then the law? That's what we're going to give you today, is the purpose of the law. Take your Bibles, I think you're already there. So Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to read 19 through 25. He goes, why then the law? It was added, he says, because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by the intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So then is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, he writes. 
For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And that leads us then to the first question, why then the law? What is its purpose? If it's not to make us right before God, if it doesn't surpass or uh, nullify the promise, what purpose does it have? And I think that's a good question. I think any good Jew would ask that question. I think Paul himself probably wrestled with that as he came to know Christ and then had to deal with, what is this law all about? I've given myself over to the law. I have done everything I can to hold up its achievement. The Apostle Paul was himself self-righteous and saying, I was blameless because I kept the whole law. However, he recognized the futility of that statement as he became a Christian and realized, I never once was blameless before the law, before I was guilty because the law showed me how guilty I was. Well, let's answer that question. What then is the law? And I'm going to share with you two things. The first thing is that the purpose of the law was to reveal sin. The purpose of the law was not only to reveal sin, but here's an extra note, it was to increase sin, which is a very strong statement. For those of you who come to our Sunday school class, you're going to see kind of a lot of correlations here. Let's go back to verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3, where he writes, Why then the law? He asks a very good question, and he answers it. It was added because of the transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Let's break that up. The law was given after the promise because the violations against God's revelation. Let me say this, and this is make this very clear. As you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1, God's law has always been evident. There's always been a revealing of who God was. But when we speak of the Mosaic law, we speak of more than just the Ten Commandments, but we speak of the purity laws and the civil laws and the ceremonial laws, the priestly laws. If you turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, you see a great indictment against all of humanity throughout history. For it says in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, that's what man has been doing from time on. They suppress the truth of God. For what can be known about God is what? Plain to them. Does it say that it was hidden? Does it say that it was a mystery? Does it say it was a scratch and sniff? No, these things are very, very plain to all. Because God had what? It's there. God is what? shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived every since when? The creation of the world in the things that have been made. Isn't it sad 
that our scientists, our biologists, our cosmologists, now is that the person who looks at the stars or is that the one who does the hair? I always get those two terms. Don't you ever get those two terms mixed up? Is a cosmologist and cosmetologist? You know, those are really, really close. Wouldn't it be terrible if you went to school and all you really wanted to do was do hair and then you wound up getting a telescope or vice versa? That would be awful. However, that's not our point today. See, I should stick to my notes. That's why I write these things down. Is that the sad point of it all, though, is the very people who look into the, to the glory of God, who should see it more plainly than others, wind up denying the very God that they're seeing. It's just amazing. It's like if I were to have a, a beautiful painting here, and then all of a sudden I put the paints down on the ground and maybe a tarp. And you'd come in and you see this great painting. Some of you say, look how beautiful that is. Who painted that? What would you think if I came in and said, I don't know. I put up a blank canvas and, you know, the staff and I, we put all these paintings here. We walked out. I heard a big bang. I walked in and this painting was just here. You would think me a fool. However, in a very simplistic way, is that not what we're saying when we look into the glory of God and say that there is no design, there is no creator, there is no painter? Let's go on. He says, so they are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's jump to verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree, those that practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You see, the law was to demonstrate our legal guilt because the very things that God put in place to draw men to Him to say, who is this creator? Who is this designer? They darkened their hearts and minds to Him. They neglected it, the very plain truth they ignored it and rejected it. So God says, now I'm going to give you and reveal to you in a much more deeper way, in a codified way, in black and white, what is God or who is God. And so the law was to demonstrate our legal guilt. As Paul writes that all have sinned and all have come short of glory. There is none righteous. The law functions to declare all guilty and deserving of God's wrath. Because we could not do the law itself. Paul wrote to the Romans of the futility of observing the law because it says, By the works of the law, no human will be justified by his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so we rejected God in his glory and in his heaven and his creation. And then we rejected God when he says, Okay, well, here I am, and he puts it on stone we see that we rejected him even so. For it was by the promise that God was going to bless Abraham, Israel, and the whole world. 
We discovered last week that the promise would come through Jesus, who was the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 15. Paul informs them of another point that proves that the promise is superior to the law when he writes that the law was given through an intermediary, a mediator, an arbitrator. They were messengers. Now in there, when he says a messenger, a messenger can be both angel and human. The law here, what he's staying here, was given by God along with the angels to Moses who delivered it to the children of Israel. In other words, God worked through people to give it to the people. God worked through mediators to give it to the people. However, the promise was given directly to Abraham by God. Deuteronomy 33.2 is that the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from thousands of holy ones with a flaming fire at his right hand. And as you go back and read Exodus, you'll see that there was no mistake that this law was from the hand of God. In Acts chapter 7, 51 and 53, Stephen continues to speak here. And he says, you stiff-necked people, speaking of the Israelites, the Jews, you are uncircumcised in heart. You may be circumcised in your flesh, but in your hearts, you're uncircumcised in your hearts and in your ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. They may obey the law, they may observe the law, but yet they still reject the very one who brings the law. It says, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Again, speaking of Christ, the Messiah, the one that we're celebrating the birth this month, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Hence, he could say that it was because of the law, it was given by an intermediary that applies more than one, but God is one. God gives a promise to them. In this last passage of Acts, we see that the first martyr, Stephen, points out that the Israelites themselves could not keep the law. So the purpose of the law was to reveal sin. Why? Because it drives us then to the promise, to the offspring, the one who can do so. It drives us to Christ due to our despair of any good in us. and drives us to a need of a Savior. That was the purpose of the law. However, again, the Jews denied it and rejected it and eventually killed the offspring, the promised one. Tom Schreiner writes, speaking of Martin Luther, one of the main purpose of the law was to convict human beings of sin so that they would be driven to Christ. So when they ask, why did God give us the law? Paul can point to him and say, you should know. It was to drive you to the Christ. It was not to show and to justify yourselves to see how good you were. For if you could obey it, there would not be any need of the sacrifices and all the offerings. However, with the giving of the law, there was the giving of the atonement. That was temporary. So Paul is saying you should know the law is to reveal sin, not to make one right or to cover sin, but only to reveal sin. Which leads then to the second question. We saw this in verse 21. 
For he asked, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And you can almost see that. They would say, well, then are those two then fighting against each other? And he says, certainly not. Paul doesn't want to give them any indication that the law is anything but good and holy. He goes, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, if you could do good works and be justified, if you could obey fully and perfectly, then it would give life. But what we see is that the law could not give life. He goes on in verse 22, But instead, the scripture did not, speaking of the law, did not make one right with God, but it imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And again, that goes to the superiority of the promise. The promise was one in which you believed. The law was one which you had to observe and obey and to conduct yourself by. First, again, let me go back and repeat this. Because you and I must recognize, as Paul writes in Romans 7, 12, that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The Mosaic law is good, it is holy. It does reveal the perfection and the purity and the holiness of God. And so it has a relevance to us even today as it did to them. But the law was not contrary. But it was also not designed to give life or to impute righteousness. For there was none who could obey it. There were none who could be perfect in observing the law. Its purpose was not to justify those who tried to obey it, but to show our inability to do so. Rather than give life, it imprisoned everyone under sin. Again, that's a tough phrase to understand. And I think you and I are indebted to John MacArthur, who writes about that verse 22, when he says the Greek verb translated imprisoned means to enclose on all sides. In other words, Paul portrays all mankind as hopelessly trapped in sin, he writes, like a school of fish caught in a net. That all people are sinners is the express teaching of Scripture. And you and I have to say amen and amen. For as you and I read the Scriptures, it makes very clear, it's a mirror into our soul that shows us the state of our hearts. In the old era of redemptive history, before Christ, we were under the power and dominion of sin, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 11. For he says, God has consigned all to disobedience. It's a strong phrase. Does that mean my little grandson Landon? Yes, of course. Does that mean Charlotte? Yes. Each and every little child we see is imprisoned under sin and will grow up imprisoned in sin and will die imprisoned to sin until God preadventure they come to a faith of God. And that's the good news. That's the gospel that you and I are to share. That's the gospel that we're celebrating here on the first day of Advent and we're going to recognize and celebrate in communion. But he also says in that same verse, not only has he consigned all to obedience, but also that he have made mercy 
That means that though you and I were once imprisoned, we are now made free since Christ came, as Paul writes in Romans 6. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And that's why Paul to this, these were fighting words. He did not want the church of Galatia to continue to be under the dominion of sin in following the law, because the law could not make anyone free. It actually imprisoned. It showed us more in sin, and it made sin more dwell within us, and it rouses our sin nature and our desire to do what's wrong. The promise and the law, though, are not contrary. What Paul is sharing is they both fit into God's plan for salvation. They have different roles. The law reveals our sin, while the promise frees us from that sin. Which leads us then to the second purpose of the law. The first was that the law was to reveal sin in our lives. It was to to drive us to the Savior. The second purpose of the law was to serve as our guardian, as we see in verse 23. He says now in verse 23, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. With faith came a new era of redemptive history. No longer did we need the offerings and the sacrifices of oxes and bulls. There is a new sacrifice, a new atonement that was for once and for all. This faith that he speaks of, this faith that comes, speaks of our trust in Christ's work on our behalf. The only power over sin comes from Christ. Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn once again to Colossians chapter 2. You ought to underline this verse or highlight it. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It'd be a good one to memorize. It's a good one to share. It's a powerful passage, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. Paul is writing to the church of Colossae at this point, and he says something that's so powerful when he writes, And you, who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's just describing all of humanity, you and I. He says, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And there's the record of debt. It's the legal demands that says, you must be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. But he cancels this record of debt against us. This record of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, Paul writes of the law functioning as our guardian until the time when Christ would come and nail all things to the cross, disarm the rulers, forgive us of our sins, and make us clean. Until that point, the law functioned as our guardian. A guardian in ancient times in Greek and Roman was a child tender, someone who tended to the children. Usually they were a slave or maybe a freedman. They normally weren't part of the family. But they were somebody who would walk with the child to school. They would protect the child and they would guide them. They were people who watched over the children 
and kept them within the boundaries of what the parents had put under them. The law functioned as our guardian and is in this way, in guiding the Israelites and all of humanity to a need of a Savior. It was to watch over, it was to help them see their need of a Savior as it revealed sin, as it revealed the holiness and purity of God. But now that the promised offspring, Christ the Messiah, had come, they no longer were under a guardian. Just as a young child, as we shall see in the next week or so, as a child grew up, there would be a point where he would no longer need a guardian to watch over him. He would then go under his own footing. In the same way, the law was no longer needed as Christ came. It was a placeholder, so to speak. But now that Christ came, they no longer needed a guardian. It was no longer needed. Circumcision, the dietary laws, the purity laws were never going to justify anyone anyway. There was no reason to go back to them. In your bulletin, would you take a moment in your bulletin, there is a little section in the middle, in the inside middle, that's called the fresh fire. And I just want to direct your attention to it. There's a great quote in there by Jerry Bridges from his book, The Discipline of Grace. In there, speaking of Jesus and the law, you see it there in the middle, it says, in both its precepts and penalty, the law of God in its most exacting requirements was fulfilled by Jesus. And he did this in our place as our representative and our substitute. You see, the law revealed sin and says, you must meet this standard. But all it did was show us how short we were or how pale we were to those standards. We could never do them. And so the law was in place until the offspring, the promised one, who could come and do it all and show us what perfection really was. In other words, God required perfection. Christ was the, con- was the one who came and provided that. The spiritual truth that Paul is communicating today for you and I, if we were to narrow it down and say, what does he want us to grasp this morning? The spiritual truth that he's communicating in this passage is that the law was temporary as it served to reveal sin and guide us for our need of a Savior. And so for Paul, when he's speaking to the Judaizers in the church of Galatia, he says this is no longer needed. You don't need this. is temporary. Don't go back to what is no longer needed. There's no power in it. There's no, there's no pleasure as far as, as finding your, your justification in this law. Circumcision, the dietary laws, the purity laws, the Leverite law, the offerings, you will not find satisfaction there. But you may ask, well, what's the problem, though, with observing the law? What's the problem with it? What's wrong with the Judaizers saying, well, okay, it's by faith, but also let's do it. I mean, for you and I, many of us will say, well, is not the law good? We say yes. Many people today, you can go to a a bookstore today and you can find a, a book that says, here's the dietary laws, eat this way and you'll be healthy. And you probably could. I like bacon too much, so I'm not sure I can handle that kind of diet book. But you could. And it would probably be good and beneficial for you in many ways. So the law has its purpose. But to the Jews, Paul realized what was happening with the Judaizers. 
You see, the Jews believed that the Torah, Mosaic law, led to life. They believed that it had purposes well beyond what God had purposed it for. They had a phrase, more study of the law, more life. Hence why you would have someone like Paul who would zealously study the law day in, day night, and just bring himself to try to do everything that the law says. Why? Because they believed that they could be justified and be saved by it. However, we understand that that's not the case. To them, they believed in the rules and the commands, for it civilizes a citizenry. This is what we say in the expectations. And I would agree, there are some ways in which we would say, yes, it is good to have rules and commands, is it not? Every country, every state has many rules and laws and commands that base themselves in the very Ten Commandments. Some others may use other types of things, and so they would use it to, to restrain evil. However, it never restrained evil. The law actually made evil come more alive. But what you and I need to realize is not that you and I need more rules and more commands, do we? I think we got enough. Because every rule and command is just another one that you and I are going to have a hard time obeying. All it does is bring more guilt and shame. And that's what the law was doing. Teaching morals is not enough. And that's what Judaism did. Is they had taken the law and said, this is what we're going to teach. However, you and I must realize that there is no command there is no rule, there are no laws that can transform people. There is no law that can do it. You can give uh, someone uh, a DUI, it's not going to transform their heart. You can put a murderer in prison, it's not going to transform his heart, or a rapist, or anyone else. A child who's reaching for that cookie, after you told him not to grab a cookie, you could slap his hand, that's not going to transform his heart. Jeremiah says, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Or can a leopard his spots? If so, then also you can do good who are accustomed to evil. However, we know that that cannot be the case. Thomas Schreiner writes an analogy. He says, a cage can keep a lion from eating a lamb. Can it not? But a cage cannot keep a lion from from wanting to eat that lamb. And that's where the world is today, is we make these religions, these rules, these commands, and we put ourselves in the cage because we don't want to satisfy the appetites of the flesh, but all it does is it brings up the desire. Any of those of you who have ever had a fast or done any type of diet understand this. Tell yourself, you cannot have a snicker blizzard because you need to lose weight. What is that going to do? All I think about is snicker blizzards. It just comes up more and more. Everything I see is a snicker blizzard. I wish it was a snicker blizzard. I've tried enough diets to know all it does is it makes me hungry and want more food. And it makes the fight to lose weight much harder. We understand this, and that's all the law does. And Paul says there's no freedom in that there's no joy in that because it's not changing your hearts and to the church of galatia that's what he's concerned about once receiving the spirit why would you go back to observing the law 
It's a step backwards. You're taking what's temporary, and now you're trying to replace what's permanent. It's a fool's errand. You see, the law is not the answer to the problem of sin. Can we agree on that? What you and I need is a changed heart, not just behavior modification. And there are too many people who are just trying to use Jesus and the church and the Bible to change their behavior when really they need a changed heart. What the lion needs is not just a cage to keep him from eating the lamb. He needs to change his heart and desire something other than the flesh of a lamb. You and I need that also. And that's what the promise has come to do. For he's come to change our hearts and our desires. And that's the prayer that I have for us this morning, just as Paul prayed it for the church of Galatia. He says, don't go back to the old way. There's no power in it. Don't be fooled. Yes, we like rules and regulations, do we not? We like that. Tell us what to do. Tell us what to expect. But then we justify ourselves by those rules and by that regulation. So what's the purpose of the law today? Same thing. Purpose of the law is the same thing. Let me tell you that the law is still good and pure and holy. It points to a pure and holy God. So when we read the Old Testament, do we just throw out the old law and say, oh, it's temporary, it's no good? No, it has a purpose. It still has a purpose today. Its still purpose is to reveal sin and to guide us to the Savior. It's needed to reveal sin as you and I evangelize. In other words, you and I ought to open up with all of our friends and relatives and loved ones. What a wonderful God we have. They need to see how righteous and pure and holy He is. And then we take the law and we show them how we fall short of it. We've heard of that, the way of the Master. He does a good job of that. He talks to someone and says, well, have you ever stolen anything? Well, yeah, most of us say, yeah, we've stolen something at home or we've stolen something from the store or we took a tool home or a pencil home from work or something like that. What does that make us? When you steal, what is, he, what is that called? You're called a thief. You know, have you ever been disobedient to your parents? Yes, what does that make you? It makes you rebellious. Have you done any of these things? And we find out, yes, we are. We are guilty. So it does have a purpose in revealing sin to those of, who need it. But then it points to our need of a Savior. Whereas people try to justify themselves many times to the law. Oh, I've been good. I've been obedient. We can use the law to show how disobedient they've truly been and their need for a Savior. Let me close with this. Martin Luther writes concerning of the law. He says, Therefore, God must have a mighty hammer, speaking of the law. I love how he writes. He must have a mighty hammer to crush the rocks and a fire burning in the midst of heaven to overthrow the mountains, that is, to crush that stubborn and perverse beast of presumption. When a man has been brought to nothing by this pounding, despairs of his own powers, righteousness and works, and trembles before God, he will in his terror, begin to thirst for mercy and forgiveness of sin. Let me join with Paul in saying to you, that promise is here today. Amen? 
I pray that you would accept it. We're going to celebrate that grace of God. Salvation, to stand right before God, it says, I trust in the works of Christ, of what he's done on my behalf, and that God is pleased with that sacrifice. Would you join me this morning in thanking God for giving us not a temporary fix, but a permanent one that brings to us the blessings of Abraham. Father, we thank you for your word. And it's very difficult at times to take time to read your word, to understand your word, and apply it in our hearts. But Lord, let us realize that this month we ought to grab dear to your word. Speak to us of the gospel. Let us see the, the purpose of the gospel, the purpose of the law, and let us thank you for both, as both are needed to show others and point others to that perfect Christmas gift of the gospel. Thank you for enlightening us this morning. And Father, I pray that our hearts will be lightened this morning. I pray that you would bring us in the conviction of our sin. Lord, I pray that you would show us the promise of a Savior. And Lord, may we rest in him. We pray this in name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.